The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Can climate change be an opportunity and not just a risk? And will Renault or Nissan come out on top of the world's biggest carmaker alliance in the wake of the Carlos Ghosn scandal? These are the issues we'll be tackling on this edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hi, Anthony. Hello. The U.S. government dumped an alarming report detailing the impact of climate change during a holiday stretch. The report comes on the heels of California's worst forest fire to date. Here to discuss the doom and gloom with me and Anthony is our Dallas-based colleague, Lauren Silva-Laughlin. Hi, Lauren. Hi, how are you guys? We're good. good. So, um, Anthony, let me start off with you and let me ask about this latest uh, U.S. report. What are the agencies involved? What is the kind of scope of it and what does it actually mean? Well, it's um, it's it's an amazingly broad report, given um, that you wouldn't expect the Trump administration to do anything on climate, given how um, it's basically against it. And did they commission it or was this from uh, President um, Actually, it's, this is congressionally mandated. Okay. Um, so every four years, we have to have a climate assessment okay. uh, by uh, this group, which has the wonderful name of the U.S. Global Change uh, Research Program. Um, and they work in conjunction with 13 federal agencies, and included in those are ones that you would expect to try and stymie this. So the Environmental Protection Agency, the Commerce Department, uh, the Department of Energy, um, all these places that are uh, staffed by cabinet members who basically don't care about climate change mm-hmm. or don't think it's an issue. Um, so that makes it very, very important for itself. Also, what the report does is it gathers together a lot of the best scientists um, who cover the various areas they're looking at, and they're looking at everything. So water, emissions, health, forestry, land use, everything that goes into what makes the economy tick. And they basically say, if we don't sort this out, and of course it has to be sorted out on a global level, not just on a on a national level for climate change, um, because we don't own the air, it goes all over the place, obviously, then if we don't sort it out, um, then the US economy overall could could have its GDP hit by up to 10% by the end of the century. And that may very well be downplaying it in certain regions of the country. We're looking at far worse than that. Okay, so that sounds awful. Yeah, <laughs> 10% of GDP as yeah. a conservative level sounds... That's bad, yeah. right? That, that's a huge hit. So what, I mean, and, and this is on top of other reports too, right? The international, there was an international Inter, report the Intergovernmental out. Panel on Climate Change from the UN, which again, staffed by um, a bunch of very clever scientists who collate all the various research on behalf of the UN, well, on behalf of the governments who asked them to do it, uh, and then put out reports saying that we need to act really soon. Otherwise, we're going to have real problems by 2040, 2050, depending on what you want to look at. Okay, so we know the risk is here. We know this is a, a danger that's on its way. Of how? What do we do? What is the problem? How do we solve it? In the sense of, can we solve it? Is there any? Yeah, well, I think actions that the, the, that can be taken? The, the, the the UN report made it very clear that action can still be taken, as did the report that came out the day after Thanksgiving uh, from the U.S. government. So basically, it's these are almost you could almost read these as as pleased to act more quickly. And you know what they're looking at, the, the problem is they, they put on these time frames, so 2030, 2040, 2050, or 2100. Yeah. As, you know, these are the, this is the worst that could happen. They, they come up with various scenarios, but you know, the 10% is the worst if nothing gets done, right, is what they're thinking. 
But the issue is, and this is what Lauren and I have been looking at, especially in the past week with the California wildfires, is actually, you know what, climate risk is already here and has been with us for a bit, but it's getting worse and worse and worse. So as much as it's, as it's helpful to see all the science collated and have people discuss what, what, you know, what the effects can be longer term, the effects are already here and it does require... Um, us all, but especially from our perspective, investors and companies, to take far more drastic action uh, than they are at the moment. Okay, so this, I think, is a good uh, point to bring in Lauren. Lauren, you have, you know, looked at the California um, fire, which is devastating. Um, It was, let's see, the worst since 1933? The most deadly and the most destructive, yeah. So 88 dead, 203 unaccounted for as of yet, 153,000 acres destroyed. Um, what, what, the thing that kind of jumped out at me, and I don't quite understand this because I haven't been following it as closely, and hopefully you can give us some insight into this, is the utility company, PG&E, is possibly responsible for sparking this fire. Possibly. Um, Can you, possibly. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit about its role in in this whole mess? Um, well, the utilities companies in the United States are a mess for all sorts of reasons, um, you know, underfunding, perhaps, or at least um, underfunding relative to the amount of money that they need to be upgraded. And so they're doing these sort of patchwork projects, um, which create problems. I think broadly, you know, to sort of tee off of what Anthony is saying, um, there had been a disconnect between the environment and companies. Um, and and that's actually created a problem in the climate debate and who's responsible for it. When you look at this through mm-hmm. the lens of, of an administration that cares about the economy um, first and foremost, then it becomes really easy to punt the responsibility of climate to various other people, right? Because like Anthony said, climate is a global problem. And we've seen this in the various um the various lawsuits that have come about with the oil companies, even in California, a judge ruled that, you know, perhaps climate isn't the fault of Exxon specifically because we don't really know exactly what uh, Exxon Exxon and others contributed to climate change. Um, And so so you have a prisoner's dilemma in the sense that each sort of global leader is trying to say, well, you have to change before I'm going to change and and you have to change. And that was the whole point of the Paris Accord. Um, you whittle that down to PG&E and its responsibility, and we see what the heart of this problem is. So what happened was there was a fire in California. PG&E, the morning of the fire, reported an outage. And you know, the question of whether or not that outage created the fire and who's responsible. Is PG&E responsible because its systems weren't upgraded enough? Is California responsible because it allowed people to build homes on forest fire, you know, there's all of these questions. And ultimately what we have is, you know, a ton of people who are dead, a company, PG&E, that may not be able to pay for the losses for these people and rising climates that have contributed to all of this happening. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's going to create major financial problems for utilities companies. It's going to create major financial problems for the people who have to pay for that. Maybe that's the rate payers. And ultimately, um, now we have a financial reason that global leaders can no longer punt this problem to someone else. Um, and maybe it's that financial problem that actually makes them do something. Yeah, I mean, let's, I mean put it, to put that in a, in a bit more context, of course, we, we expect fires. Wildfires are part of nature. Right? They, they have to happen. It's part of how forests can, um, can refresh and regrow. Um, the issue is that 
Um, the acreage now being hit by wildfires has roughly doubled in the past 30 or 40 years in, in the Western United States. And they're getting drier, uh, the forests. They're getting more overgrown because um, they're not being managed as well as they could be because the money isn't there. And that's the one area where President Trump in his, oh, we need to sort out the forest management, had a point, although he just took it down to raking the floors, which, of course, is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, there is an issue about, about all of that. And climate change, whether it's drought, whether it is higher temperatures, um, whether uh, and whether it's um, new species coming into forests that have been planted when they shouldn't have been, taking up more water, which has happened in South Africa and elsewhere, these all make matters far worse, which is why you know, the climate risk is making all these issues we see already even worse than they already are. So let's talk about it from the company perspective then. If I'm, you know, any company right now, what are some actions that I can take? And, you know, they're in terms of Fund. I mean, just getting funding maybe to attack yeah. this issue. Well, actually, what I mean, have the, you the, seen? The, the first thing you need that companies need to do is is a, is get the data they need, and they're, they're increasingly doing that. And there was a report out recently uh, looking at what the S and P five hundred companies have done, and seventy eight percent of them now have. Um, a sustainability report, mm-hmm. but which which sounds good, but a lot of that is going to be box ticking. Most of them right. only, you know, I think only about a hundred of them, one hundred and fifty of them, um, go into any vague detail on um, their emissions risks. Many of them don't talk about water. They don't integrate all the various risks and assume, well, you know, what does this mean for emissions, water, supply chain, everything? Only fourteen of the companies actually try and integrate all the various data and come up with various plans. So there's a lot more they can do. But if you don't have the data, if you don't know um, where your risks are, if you don't understand um, the you know, the area you're li- you're operating or the areas you're operating in may have um, water scarcity may have um, you know there may be be claims by others on on what you can use or what you can do with rivers or whatever else if you don't understand all that if you don't understand your supply chain risk and ha- what they're doing then you're increasingly at risk of of firstly becoming liable but also of just being behind the times and contributing to the problem more than you you think you'd are well I would think the liability particularly in pg and es case would get people or get not people yeah. would get companies would it, light, it, you know not it should use do. A bad but term. of course we're still talking about these things in terms of you know, 100-year droughts, 500-year fires, all this kind of thing. And yet we're seeing, you know, you've got, I think, five of the hottest years on on record have been in the past eight years. Um, The worst fires have been, I think, the worst fire by acreage in in California was last year. The worst fire by destruction and death was this year. I mean, it's just getting worse and worse. So the more we we can change the language, the more companies might think, ah, we need to do something. It's not not a one-off risk. It's something that we face every single day. Well, and to, to, to an extent also, you know, uh, state regulators are responsible. Um, they stepped in last year to help PG&E with uh, wildfires in the North California to help pay for that because the company said it was going to be insolvent. Um, and the question is, who pays for that insolvency? In that case, the ratepayers paid for it. You know, in this case, mm. perhaps the shareholders need to pay for it. You know, because companies are self-interested and they are not going to be ma- making any changes until they're held responsible. So they'll be held responsible two ways: one. They have to pay and their earnings fall or perhaps they go bankrupt. Or two, people change their habits. Consumers change their habits and they don't make quite as much money. Um, and companies aren't really going to change until either of those things happen. OK, so what are some of the opportunities then? Because there must be opportunities in this. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, 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 we far too often look at climate change as a risk. And that makes a lot of sense given all the numbers we see about how much it's going to cost. But um, 
you know, to, to solve anything or to achieve anything, you usually need to invest something, whether it's time or money. In this case, we need to do both. Um, and you can just look around at various issues and think, well, what can we do to make this better? Well, infrastructure, basically, is what this is all about. So transportation is you know, the biggest single contributor to, to climate emissions. Um, the steel, cement industries, those kind of things uh, you know, are also contributing a fair amount. So how do you position it so that these guys think, you know what, we're going to do better out of this? Well, for infrastructure, for example, if you were to just invest in the, I think it's about $800 billion or so is needed for U.S. water and wastewater infrastructure. Um, the U.S. Water Alliance uh, last year looked at this and said, you know, you could get a $2.2 trillion return investing in all of this mm-hmm. over a period of time. So mm-hmm. that's a threefold return. That's pretty damn good, right? So why not, why not parlay that more? And there are plenty of investors out there who have the money to invest in such projects and keep talking about, well, you know, we don't have all the opportunities out there. Too many of the things are too small. And that makes sense. There are a lot of small things that are being done that are great. And one of them we, we looked at in terms of the wildfires, which is uh, it's called a uh, forest resilience bond. And it's a very simple thing. It tries to put together all the various things we've been talking about. So who's at risk? Who can benefit from... Um, from trying to sort out the issue. And basically what the bond does is raise money uh, for whoever's in charge of um, forests, so often it's um, local authorities or federal, the federal uh, government, which controls at least half of them. And says, okay, you don't have the money, so why don't we collaborate? So let's find those who know there'll be a benefit. So it could be the PG&Es of this world, the insurance companies of this world, and others who think, you know what, there is a risk here if we don't do something. So let's create a bond, we'll sort out the management of the forest so wildfires won't be as destructive and it won't hit our bottom line as much. So, okay, that's, that's dealing with a risk, but there's an opportunity for investors there to make some decent money as well. Okay, so have you seen an uptick in this kind of investment? Not just the creation of it, but generally, real change. Generally, yes. I think the issue is that a lot of the biggest investors are looking more at box ticking. And I, mm-hmm. I, that's somewhat pejorative. But you, know, you can look around at, at, at investors and say, look, um, we're doing far more ESG investing or, or sustainable investing. Uh, and you know, ESG meaning uh, environmental, social and governance. And there was a recent report uh, that showed that um, I think one in four of the $47 trillion under professional management in the US is now classified by by this group as sustainable investing. That's really over-egging it, I think, because a lot of that is just, okay, let's not invest in tobacco companies or let's not invest in oil stocks or let's say that we've used a screen to only invest in companies that meet certain criteria. But it's not putting money to work necessarily where it's needed. So there's two different things there. Mm -hmm. And you do need to put money to work where it's needed. Right. And that, I think, is one of the biggest issues. Another thing you could do, and this is this is more to push companies rather than being a risk or opportunity, but I think you do need to see in big investors say, you know what, um, it's not enough just to ask for more information about climate risks at annual meetings and during the year. We want, we want you to come up with decent targets, link executive and, and board pay to... Uh, to what you're doing with uh, climate emissions reduction and water issues and whatever else, and really push companies, because at the end of the day, as Lauren's saying, they need to be res- need to take responsibility for right. it, which often means being remunerated and having their pay linked to what they're doing. All right. Well, that is all very depressing. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show. Thank you both. One of the car industry's best-known executives, Carlos Ghosn, was ousted from some of his many roles in a shocking blow to a car alliance he's overseen for at least 13 years. He's run both Renault and Nissan, and he was also the head of Mitsubishi, but he was so tightly bound with these companies for so long, it shows just how bad corporate governance can impact a company's fortunes. Here to help talk us through the scandal and what it means for the companies involved is Liam Proud, our Breaking Views colleague 
on the phone from London. Welcome back, Liam. How are you doing? Hi, I'm not bad. How are you, too? Yeah, we're surviving. We're surviving. You've, you've been uh, stuck on this thing for, for what, a best part of a week. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. So Gon is a bit of background here. He, he took over as CEO of Nissan, I think, in 2001, CEO of Renault in 2005. The two had struck a big alliance in 1999. They added Mitsubishi, Avto, Naz in Russia. So this is like one of the biggest congl- uh, car conglomerates out there. And he's one of the longest serving, if not, I suppose, after the death of, of um, Sergio Marchionne, not if not the longest serving car CEO of a major car company. So what happened? Yeah. Just, talk, just quickly, talk us through what happened. Then we'll go on to get into what it all means. So at the beginning of last week, last Monday, um, and I'm actually sitting in the same room where I was at the time, I saw an email come through on my phone that said uh, the Japanese press were reporting that Carlos, Carlos Ghosn was going to be arrested after his plane touched down in Tokyo. Um, that turned out to be true. He was arrested. He was taken off to um, Japanese jail, where he still is. Um, and he has basically been accused by the Nissan CEO and the a Nissan investigation, which they started after a tip-off from a whistleblower, of underreporting his pay. Um, basically, they said that there was about 5 billion yen worth of um, remuneration that that wasn't included in filings to the Tokyo Stock Exchange, um, and also a variety of other things that they put under the bucket of serious financial misconduct. Um, and the press reports that have come out have included all kinds of scurrilous details about him using company slush funds to pay for um, you know, plush pads in Rio and, and Beirut. Now, all of these are kind of allegations. We haven't seen the Nissan report. Um, but he was then promptly ousted as the chairman of Nissan at a board meeting on Thursday that was called by the Nissan CEO and his former protege, um, who is now uh, seems to be the person calling the shots at Nissan. Now, we'll get into some of the, 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 the potential uh, twos and two, backs and forth and twos and fro's on this one. But, but let's just stick with the, the corporate governance angle here. It's absolutely incredible. How, how is it even possible that an executive can misreport his earnings to regulators? Shouldn't this, uh, it's shouldn't not, this be known? It's not, as far as I'm concerned. It's, I, don't, I don't understand that allegation. And, and no one really seems to understand how that allegation works. It's not as if the chairman of a company sits down and writes the, the annual report by themselves and sort of, you know, dashes off these details. It's, it's something that it, it, it would have had to have been done. And, and, and this is now kind of, you know, been widely reported in the press. It would have had other accomplices involved if the allegations were true. Um, so the the assumption is that there are some internal whistleblowers who have taken a plea bargain um, right. in order to to kind of dish on going here. And this, of course, this this whole plea bargaining thing is it's it's very new. It's only the second case after the Japanese government passed a law allowing whistleblowers to um, to go uh, unpunished if they were involved in the crime. Is that am I reading that right? Yeah, that's right. And and just as a kind of side note, the. The conviction rate in Japan is extremely high. You tend not to get arrested and, and questioned unless they're pretty, almost 100% sure that they're going to that they're going to convict you of something. Okay. Um, so that's worth bearing in mind here. This is not a kind of, um, you know, with French companies, for example, you do see occasional stories of people being under police questioning and then mm. nothing comes of it. That doesn't tend to happen in Japan. Um, Liam, can we just step back here for a second and just maybe explain exactly where Gohan has been all, all these years? I mean, he's in so many different companies. He's in, 
my understanding, so many different cities. Just like what, what, like he's been all over the place. What just kind of set this up and explain to us how this could have happened? Yeah. So, so he has for for you know over a decade. I mean, he's been he's actually been involved with Renault for for going on two decades. But for for, for over a decade now, he's sat atop this enormous global car alliance which is basically this kind of slightly awkward uh, cross shareholding arrangement between Renault which is um, one of the bigger French car companies is part owned by the government and Nissan um, and, which that, everybody and, that's, will and be Renault is with. in Paris is that where Renault, Renault is, 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 well, is, is, is based elsewhere in France but it, but it has some offices in Paris yeah okay. um, and the, the kind of the government's holding is, is managed out of Paris by the kind of uh, under the influence of the Treasury there. Now, he has supposedly um, had some uh, apartments in Rio and Beirut where there aren't kind of vast uh, Nissan or, or Renault operations. Um, and the allegation is that he's been uh, funneling some cash towards his sister to help him find these flats and that Nissan's corporate coffers have been used to kind of pay for some of the renovations on this. But, I mean, there's quite an important backstory to all of this which is that Renault basically rescued Nissan from near bankruptcy at the end of the 1990s. Um, okay. They injected a bunch of capital um, when Nissan was quite close to the brink and they took a 43% stake. Now that sort of morphed over the next few years leading up to the early 2000s into more of a kind of formalized alliance, alliance where they had then had a reciprocal stake of 15% in Renault which is about the same amount that the government now owns in Renault. Um, and the idea was that, look, we'll share costs on research and development and we'll, we'll buy materials together and we'll build cars using the same kind of basic bits and pieces and that will save us money. Um, and this has kind of long been a dream of the car sector is how can we slash our costs? Yeah. So, I mean, just to put that in a bit of context, I mean, this, this alliance was struck roughly the same time or around the same time as um, one of the biggest ever car mergers, Daimler Chrysler, which happened to, to fail pretty spectacularly when Chrysler went under just after Daimler um, bailed out. So the idea of actually having an alliance, okay, yes, as you're saying, Renault helped uh, bail Nissan out, to have an alliance rather than the full takeover, actually made a degree of sense back then. Why commit yourselves to one to the other when you don't know exactly what's going to happen? So you get these cost savings out, it feels pretty good, uh, and you don't have to worry about giving up too much independence, and you can just see how it works. So that seemed pretty good, but it's gone on for so very long now, and there have been intermittent attempts or discussions about formalizing that alliance into a merger, including earlier this year, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a story that does the rounds quite often, and it, and it seems to be the case that, that Ghosn, um probably with the backing of the French state, was pushing for a merger. I mean, you, I think you, you used a telling phrase, you said, you know, it, it, it works, you don't have to kind of, you know, commit yourself to or submit to control, but the the feeling in Japan certainly is that actually they have been basically subjugated to French control this whole time, um, and that because of the circumstances in which this alliance was was forged, where they were the weaker party, um, they're essentially under the control. If you look at the amount of shares that the French government um, and Renault, the French government indirectly through Renault, um, owns in Nissan, because they own more than forty percent under French law. Nissan's reciprocal stake of 15% doesn't have any votes attached to it, which means that Renault's board 
you know, in a sense, has a say over Nissan's decision making, but there isn't a, it doesn't, it doesn't work the other way. And there is a feeling in Paris, I think, at the moment, and no one's quite coming out and saying this, but if you speak to people who are kind of, you know, around these companies, they say, actually, the Japanese have been unhappy with this situation for a very long time, and they may have been trying to use these allegations against Ghosn as a chance to try and push for a rebalancing of the alliance, if you like. Um, so, Liam, that, you know, putting somebody in jail seems like a really drastic way to, to go about untangling yourself from um, an alliance that you don't want to be part of. What is happening in France and Paris and what's the viewpoint there? How are they viewing all of this? And are they thinking, OK, we need to um, look at our own, like do our own charges against them? Like, how does that work? Yeah, well, I think everybody in Paris really is trying to figure out what's going on. I think it's fair to say that Emmanuel Macron, um, who's the French president, and Bruno Le Maire, who's the economy minister, and they're two people, I mean, Macron in particular has been intimately involved with Renault for a very long time. He uh, did a sort of emergency move in 2015 where he upped the state stake in Renault to try and uh, defend it against what they thought was a, a move towards more of a kind of closer cooperation with Nissan that they weren't happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they were totally blindsided by all this. They really didn't see this coming. Um, and they, I think, spent the first few days trying to figure out what was going on. Um, you know, is there more to this than, than it seems? Is this a kind of uh, a Japanese push for, push for control for renegotiating the alliance? Um, and since the initial move, we haven't actually heard uh, an enormous amount from, from the French Treasury or from the French kind of decision makers here. We've heard some kind of loose noises about, look, we're both very keen on the structure of this alliance. The, we don't want. We don't need to do anything radical. Mitsubishi, which is the junior partner in this three-way alliance, has said similar things, as has um, Nissan. But it, it's it's hard to reconcile that with some of the comments that have come out from the Nissan CEO last Monday. He held a press conference where he sounded, I mean, more than anything, just very angry with the way that things had been done for undergoing leadership. He talked about meddling in Nissan's day-to-day operations. Um, and I think the feeling now is that there will be some, some, some discussions going on between Renault and Nissan. It's worth bearing in mind that Carlos Ghosn is still technically the CEO of Renault. Okay, and so, so then who's, who wins and loses in this? If, if we take it as read that there's a degree of backroom uh, machinations here, it's fair to say you know, the, the two companies, they're not in completely the opposite situation they were when the alliance was first struck. Renault isn't in, in danger of going under, I don't think, but it's not been doing very well. It's got a very low multiple. Its earnings aren't great. Um, Nissan, on the other hand, is doing better um, than its partner. So this gives, regardless of what they're all saying, this gives even more impetus, as you were saying, to Nissan to try and change the alliance. But is that really what's going to happen? What, 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 are, your, what are your thoughts on, on what happens next? I think it's, it's very hard to know. I think if you just look at who holds the key in this relationship, I mean, R- Renault has a big stake in Nissan and Nissan's stake in Renault is effectively oh. non-voting. So that is kind of hard to get beyond. You know, There's all kinds of things that Nissan could do to try and ask the French side to sell down, but they don't really have to do anything that they don't want to do, the French. There is a kind of idea that Nissan would try and snap up a bunch of Renault shares in the market, buy uh, enough Renault shares so that they actually finally have a say, and if they buy up to a certain threshold, they could actually neutralise Renault's votes on their own board. Um, But I kind of, I find it hard to imagine it really coming down to these kind of 
you know, corporate raiding on, on, on your alliance partner. I think probably what will happen is um, there'll be some kind of recognition by the French government that actually we need to rebalance this thing. Uh, our alliance partner is not happy here. Um, and there will be some kind of request made by the Nissan board, um, possibly through um, the, some, some Japanese ministries. Um, and they will come to some kind of agreement that preserves goodwill somehow, um, because neither of them want to see this thing unwind, because then they'd both be left as kind of subscale players in, in, a, in a threatened industry, and no one wants that. And do you have a sense of timing on that? I ask merely because and if you look around the industry, you've got so much going on, so much investment being made in um, uh, electric batteries, in autonomous vehicles. And you know, Nissan and Renault are trying to do that as well, obviously. But the more you have this, this problem at the top of both these companies and Mitsubishi, then the more distracted they're going to be. So the impetus must be to get this thing sorted out more uh, sooner rather than later, I think. I'd imagine so, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you, you have interim um, bosses and, and chairman at Renault at the moment, um, and you, you know, there's, there's no chairman at Nissan at the moment. No one wants this to, to, to linger on and on. As you say, there are, there are much bigger kind of structural problems to think about here. Um, I mean, in terms of guessing how quickly it gets solved, I mean, I, I have no idea. I'd, I'd be picking a, a number at random, but I would imagine it's something you want to get wrapped up quite quickly. Yeah, I mean, um, three or even four corporate boards plus um, a government shareholder doesn't necessarily make for for quick decision-making, but we'll see where that goes. Liam, thank you so much for coming on and uh, explain to us what's going on in this this absolute hodgepodge of a mess. We'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much, both. Bye. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Lauren Silver-Loughlin and Liam Proud for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Ross Shoulder. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.